Hi there, and welcome to the Cold Dive. I'm Lucas, aka Chrono Kirby, and this is the place for musings on technology, cryptography, and how much rice should be contained in Genmaicha tea. Today I'd like to talk about a paper uh, that I wrote the weekend, but that I've been thinking about for quite some time. And that paper is on security against time traveling adversaries, which went on, which went up on ePrint uh, yesterday, Monday. And which I think is quite an interesting paper. It's, it's sort of what it says on the 10. So in it, I kind of basically ask a simple question. If the people attacking your crypto system have time machines, do they get an advantage in their attacks? If you had a time machine yourself, what extra cryptography could you break? And is it possible to tweak cryptographic schemes so that's they're secure even if someone has a time machine? And the model of time travel that I look at there is sort of the intuitive one. So if you've, you know, watched Back to the Future or other, you know, science fiction novels, the model of time travel you have there is that your time machine allows you to move backwards in time. Sometimes it also allows you to move forwards. So either you skip into the future or if you move backwards in time, then you can sort of resume where you were previously. And this is a thought I, I first sort of had a few months ago, back in June, but it was mainly kind of a, a, a joke, mainly a joke, 80% a joke at the time. It was mainly not serious. But then a few weeks ago, I sort of realized that you could, you could study the problem more formally because it's, it's tricky to model time travel. Uh, it's not, it's not very straightforward, but I, f I found a, a good way of doing it. And then after doing that, I realized that you could get a few interesting results. So you could compare different models of time travel and show how some were stronger than others, and that they formed this nice little hierarchy of increasingly strong capabilities. I also realized that while some games would be broken, you know, other games would remain secure. So I, at that point, a few weeks ago, I had enough results where I felt like it would make a, a, a neat little paper. And so last weekend I wrote everything up and now it's a little 27 page paper on preprint, which is, or on ePrint. It's a preprint on ePrint. So yeah, I guess in the rest of this episode, I'm gonna sort of try and explain things a bit more, more deeply. So first of all, why even care about time travel, you know? Uh, first of all, I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of an interesting topic. Like it's sometimes in cryptography, you have sort of thought experiments that you use to sort of stress your knowledge of how you formalize what it means for things to be secure. And you sort of test the limits of, uh, you know, the foundations of cryptography. So time travel is a good way to do that. So it's a, it's a good exercise and 
in working with cryptographic proofs and defining security games. And it's sort of, a, you know, fun to think about. Uh, you know, the title is almost clickbait, because when you read on security against time traveling adversaries, it sounds like a joke, but then you have a, a, an actual serious study of the topic. So that was, that's fun in and of itself. But there's actually some relevance to real world concerns. I mean, first of all, you have, in theory, someone can invent a time machine. I think at this point, with our understanding of physics, the, the classical science fiction notion of time travel is, is almost debunked. But, you know, maybe someone will figure it out someday. Uh, so it's kind of like quantum computing or something like that, where now people have figured out how to make quantum computers and they're sort of engineering them to be practical. But And then that allows you to break a lot of cryptography. But also, the interesting thing about computers is that in some systems, time travel is actually sort of possible from the perspective of the computer. So let's say you have a cryptographic system that's running in a virtual machine. Uh, and the attacker has control sort of over, over the virtual machine is like an opaque box. So the time travel can, the, the, the adversary can reset the state of the virtual machine, maybe rewind it back a few steps. So in that case, from the perspective of the system running inside the, the VM, well, the adversary is basically time traveling because when the adversary resets the state of the VM or re rewinds uh, the state backwards, that's as if the adversary is time traveling. So if you had models of time travel and how they impact security, you could use those to analyze the security of systems which are running under a VM, which the adversary has this ability to, to reset and rewind. So that's an interesting application of time travel. Uh, another one, it, which is sort of related to this, is that a lot of uh, devices uh, rely on clocks for different security systems. And for, for example, the, the one paper I'll cite here, uh, by a few people was looking at digital contact tracing. So uh, at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, a lot of countries uh, with a common sort of infrastructure released this kind of contract tracing system. And it tried to be sort of anonymous in, in various ways. So it wouldn't lead to tracking individual people, but it will let people get notified if they were in the same room or close to somebody that got infected with COVID. But one part of the system is that it sort of relied on timestamping uh, to a certain extent. And in this paper, what they looked at is sort of attacking a phone by tricking it into thinking that the time was earlier than it actually was, and which would sort of allow you to send notifications of being exposed to COVID backwards into the past. And this would sort of break the security assumptions of the system. And so crucially, it relied on devices being tricked into rewinding their clocks back in time. And one way to model this trickery is by giving the adversary attacking the system the ability to travel backwards in time. Because if I can make people think that time has reset, that's essentially the same as traveling back in time. Or at least there's some you know, overlap here. And then another thing is that uh, the notion of rewinding shows up directly in some security notions. So if you look at uh, zero-knowledge proofs, for example, or really just probabilistic proofs. Zero-knowledge isn't... Well, zero-knowledge is actually important when it comes to rewinding because one way you prove that something is a, is a proof of knowledge is that you have what's called an extractor, which is able to rewind the prover. So one way to re model this rewinding is that the extractor is able to time travel when interacting with the prover. So that's you know one side of the coin. The other side of the coin 
is that often what you have uh, and cryptographically is you have a protocol where the prover and the verifier need to interact by sending messages. And then you can compile this into a non-interactive system by replacing the prover with just sort of a hash function. So if all the prover does, oh, the verifier rather. So if all the verifier does is just generate a random coin or just some random bits and sends that to the prover each time, the prover has to react to those random bits, then you can sort of replace the verifier with a hash function. The issue with doing this is that in a normal interactive protocol, you know, after interacting with the, the verifier, you know, the, 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 that round is done. You know, the prover can't make the verifier redo or reflip bits in that round. Once the prover sends a message, uh, they can't take that message back. There's no take backsies in interactive protocols. Whereas if you replace the verifier with a hash function, what you can do is the prover can send a message in one round, see what randomness comes out, and then they can decide if they like that randomness or not and try again. So basically each individual round can be retried because what I can do is I can sort of advance, you know, the protocol up to a certain point. I get to a weak spot where it's easy to, to retry a bunch of times to get the right result and then I proceed from there. So you have this sort of notion of like rewindable soundness where each, even if the prover can rewind each round, it still needs to be, the, the protocol still needs to be sound. So the prover can't convince a verifier of a false statement even if they have the ability to like retry each individual round. So one way to model this is that you say that even if the prover has a time machine, they can't convince a verifier of a false statement. So you basically model uh, the prover retrying certain rounds as them going backwards in time and resetting around that way. So there's literally a direct application of having time machines to that the notion of rewindable soundness in interactive proofs which is like actually a very important notion because very often you want to compile interactive proofs into non-interactive proofs via uh, something like the fiat Shamir transform and there the, the notion of rewindable soundness shows up so hopefully that's, that's convinced you that time travel is like an interesting question to study which actually can matter for certain cryptography in practice um, so then the, the second problem, or really, you know, the first problem you run into when you try to model time travel is that you really capture security of different schemes via games. So you have a challenger, which has sort of a cryptographic system, and usually, you know, the secret information that, that you need to use that system, for example, any secret key, stuff like that, the challenger keeps hidden. And then you have an adversary, which is trying to break the system. And so if the adversary can't do interact with the system at all, it's, it's obviously, you know, sort of secure, but that's not very interesting. So you need to give the adversary some kind of ability to play with the system. So it may be for testing out an encryption system, the adversary is sort of able to see, to get encryptions of messages and that shouldn't tamper with the system. And usually the adversary has some kind of goal, which would allow breakage of, of security. For example, with an, an encryption system, one simple thing that you could do is you say, well, I allow the adversary to encrypt messages that of their choice. Uh, they send me a message. I'm the challenger. I encrypt it with my secret key and I give them the ciphertext. And the goal of the adversary in this situation is to figure out what the key is. So that would be one notion of security for, for encryption. It's somewhat a, a, of a weak notion of security because I could just give the message back to them and not use the key at all. 
and they wouldn't be able to win because their, their goal is to recover the key. And if I just send the messages, they can't recover the key. On the other hand, the messages are completely in the clear, so I don't really do a good job of hiding the messages. So there's this sort of this balance here where you need to try and create this game which captures a useful notion of security. So with encryption, to, to continue with this example, usually instead of key recovery, you use this sort of stronger notion of security called indistinguishability. And the idea is basically I shouldn't be able to tell what's inside of a ciphertext. And so the way you model this as a game is that the adversary gives the challenger two messages and receives back the encryption of one of the messages, but they don't know which, which one. And the idea is that if the encryption is good, you shouldn't be able to tell which message was encrypted because the ciphertext should look completely random to you. And so that's, that's what we call indistinguishability. And then you can sort of augment that with more capabilities. So at the base level, all the adversary can do is they can just as a one-shot thing, they send the two messages and get back the encryption, and that's the only interaction they have. From that point on, they have to guess which of the two messages was encrypted. Uh, another notion is that of indistinguishability under choice and plaintext attack, or NCPA. And there, uh, in addition to this challenge, the adversary is also able at any time to ask for the encryption of a message. And what this forces is that it forces the encryption to be randomized. Because otherwise, what I could do is I send my two messages, right? I get back the encryption of one of the messages, and then using the oracle, which gives me the encryption of any message, well, I ask for one of the two messages I've sent. And so if encryption isn't randomized, if I get the same ciphertext every time, then I'll be able to figure out which of the two challenge messages was encrypted, because I'll just be able to see whether or not it matches the, the, the new query. So... By adding choice and plain text attacks, you force encryption to be randomized. And then a stronger notion of security here is that you also allow decryption of ciphertexts. And so the only caveat here is that you can't decrypt any of the challenge ciphertext. So if I've if I've sent you know my two messages M0 and M1, and I get back some ciphertext C, I'm not allowed to decrypt that that one. And this sort of models situations where like it's, it, it's sort of a, a tricky security notion because it's it's almost at the notion of authenticated encryption, but not quite. But basically, ciphertext can't be malleable. I, I shouldn't be able to change the content inside of a ciphertext. It's, it's not really enough to get you to authenticated encryption, but it's sort of moving in that direction. And it, it sort of models a situation where you might have limited access to being able to decrypt certain ciphertexts. Like often it's called the, the lunchtime attack. The idea is like, well, I have access to a terminal, you know, during lunch while everybody's away, or maybe at night while everybody's sleeping, I can decrypt some some messages, and then the future that needs to help me uh, attack the system, or maybe I can attack. I can sort of I have run terminal which which won't allow me access to the challenge ciphertext, and I can decrypt different uh, ciphertext there, but that's sort of a bit artificial once you get to the adaptive version. But I digress. <laughs> But anyhow, that, that's sort of the, the... I've talked about a few different games for for encryption, but basically for every sort of cryptographic scheme, you have a, a different game, and the games can often have very different shapes. Like, the adversary can have a different objective. Uh, the adversary ha has different functions they can call with the game, which we also call oracles, uh, etc., etc. So what you need to do to model time travel. So like one way to do it is like you sort of augment each game with time travel. The problem is that like 
it becomes difficult to analyze time travel in like an abstract sense. Because one thing you want to do is you want to say, okay, this is one model of time travel, model A. This is another model of time travel, model B. Is model B stronger than A? Is model B weaker? Are they equivalent? And, and this kind of analysis is difficult unless like you have like a, a general notion of game. And so that's one thing I did to work is like, I had to find this notion of an, what I called an abstract game. So an abstract game is like, has the same interface, but it's able to capture everything. And so the basic idea is that uh, rather than having a concrete objective, um, so like in the key recovery case for encryption, the adversary needs to learn the key. And like you could say, you know, they're successful if the key matches. Uh, another way of, of phrasing things is that like you always make it so that the adversary's goal is very simple. It's to tell which of two games they're playing. So with indistinguishability in game zero, they might always receive the encryption of the first message they send. And in game one, they might always they will always receive the encryption of the second message. And so their goal is to tell which of the two games they're playing. And in fact, you can phrase every security game in this sort of paradigm. So there's two games and the adversary needs to figure out which one they're playing. And so that's very nice because it allows us to, it allows us to basically have a uniform objective for the adversary. And one trick to, if, if you had a concrete objective before, for example, with key recovery, one thing you can do to phrase it in this, you know, left or right paradigm is that you have a secret bit. Uh, or, or rather, you know, in game zero, this bit is zero, in game one, this bit is one, and you have a function where if you present the correct key, uh, it returns the bit. So then it basically turns the objective of finding the right key and, you know, allows allows winning that objective to give you the bit that you're, you're supposed to determine. But a bit of a digression there too. Anyhow, now we have a uniform objective, but, you know, the shape of each game might still be the same, might, might be different. There might be different functions you can call, you know, games can also maintain a certain state. So for example, with uh, the end and distinguishability with chosen ciphertext attacks, you need to maintain the set of challenge ciphertexts that have been generated so that you don't decrypt those. So that's a bit of state that needs to be maintained. You also need to maintain uh, the secret key that you've generated for encryption. So you have different states, different functions, but you can sort of unify all of them under like one common interface. So one trick you can do is that if you have different functions you can call, well, you can collapse them all into one function. You just specify in the input, like which part of the function you'd like to call. So if I have functions A and B, I can move that into a single function like O. And then in the input, I say, okay, I'd like to call function A with this input, or I'd like to call function B with this input. So everything can be collapsed into a single function. And then from there, the way functions work is actually quite simple. All function does uh, in, in the security game is it, it reads in the state, it reads in the input, it you know it's it's randomized, it can you know do some random stuff, and then you get an output, and you get a new state. So it's always so it's essentially like a, a randomized state machine. I take in the old state and the input that's passed to the to the transition function, I get a new state, and I get an output. You know I update the state to the new state, I give you the output. And then now the state's been modified and we continue playing. So really you can capture all games with sort of just two functions. You need one function to initialize the state and you need another function which accepts input and the old state and through some randomized process produces the output and a new state. And this is enough to capture basically every security game, 
But what's neat is that it's, it's a single interface. You just have one function you can call. The function where you just give it some input, it gives you an output, and you know that the state's been modified in between. And this is very useful because it becomes... Once you have this definition, it becomes much clearer to think about time travel because you're, you're, you're in this sort of state machine paradigm and you already, you know, you're sort of chomping at the bit and you already you can already see how, how, how time travel is going to work because you're going to basically modify the way the state progression works rather than going always forwards. Maybe you can move the state progression backwards or you can fork it, stuff like that. So once I realized the, the abstract game concept, uh, the, the time travel models kind of flowed naturally from that. And I, I guess the, the natural thing to talk about next would be the, the models of time travel. So, you know, first notion of time travel, you can go backwards in time. So what's, what's the simplest way to go backwards in time? Well, I go backwards in time by one time step. I mean, I guess first one thing I should mention is that I, I've talked about sort of the, the, that you can model games like the state machine. And one thing I sort of assume here when it comes to time travel is that time is discrete. So by this, I mean the adversary can't jump in the middle of a state transition or like they can't partially undo a state transition. And my reasoning for this restriction is that if you look at what the adversary sees, they give some input to the, to the game and they receive some output, but the output captures everything they learn about the process. So if you want to sort of model, you know, side channel leakage, for example, like timing side channels or stuff like that, you would include that in the output. That's the simplest way to, to model things. Because like, once again, this is sort of an abstract model of how security works. And because of this, there's sort of no way for the adversary to know at which point the output is generated. Like, let's say they're trying to jump halfway bet bet through the generation process. It's possible that like all the output was generated at the very beginning and, and then the game just waited and then given the output, or maybe like all of it was generated near the end, like the, it, it, there's no way to tell because there's no indication whatsoever beyond just receiving the output. No other information comes out of the out of, out of the game until then. So as a simplifying assumption, you can sort of assume that the adversary can sort of jump to before they called the function or to after it. But like each, every time the adversary calls a function, it sort of advances time by one unit and they can jump between these different points in time, but they can't jump sort of in between two function calls. That's a bit of a simplifying assumption. But I, th I think it's very reasonable. <laughs> and, I th and you can do a lot of interesting things even with that assumption. So anyhow, you have this discrete model of time where each time the adversary interacts with the game, the, the time moves by one unit forward. So maybe, you know, every day the adversary sends a letter uh, to the game and receives a response back. And they can, you know, travel in time to the beginning of each day. Maybe you model it that way. They have like a closet or something. They step into the closet, they go back to the previous day. And so that's the first, the simplest model of time travel, really. Uh, you can go back by one unit in time. So the way you model this is that rather than having a single state that the game keeps track of, now the game internally has a list of states. You know, S0 is the first one. Then the first time you call the transition function with an input, you get S1. The next time you get S2, etc. And it, it maintains this list. And then you add this special rewind function, which says, okay, go back to the previous state. So if you're at S3, now you go back to S2. If you're at S2, now you go back to S1. And every time you call rewind, this is what happens. So you can go back by exactly one, one unit of time. And so the, the first question that you might have is, is this more powerful than not being able to time travel? Because it's still somewhat weak. I can only go back by, by one unit of time. 
And it turns out this is enough to, to, to break certain schemes. How, how would you prove something like this? Well, you, you provide an example. I give you an example game, which is secure uh, under normal circumstances, but even with this little bit of time travel, it's already broken. And this game is very simple to describe to the point that I can even attempt to describe it orally, which is you generate two random keys and these keys are large enough that you can't guess them. So maybe you have a key with 128 bits. There's two to the 128 possibilities. You cannot guess that. <laughs> There's no way you're ever going to be able to guess that uh, before the heat, de heat death of multiple universes. Uh, so more formally, you model this by saying it's you know, a lambda bits long, where lambda is the security parameter, but that's sort of a detail. Anyway, two long keys get generated at random. And then how does the game work? Well, the goal of the adversary is to guess both keys. If they can provide the game with both keys, they learn the bit, the secret bit V, which they're trying to, trying to determine. And obviously, if they can't do anything else but just guess, they're never going to win. So to help them, the game allows them to query one of the two keys. So you can say, I want key zero, or I want key one. But the trick is, once you've learned one of the keys, that's it. You can't learn anything else. So you can ask for key zero or key one, you learn that key, and then you get cut off. It stops. You can't do anything more after that point. So you can learn one of the keys, and then you can start making guesses. So naturally, without time travel, you're, you're, you're basically stuck there. Because you can you can query one of the keys, but then you need to guess the other one, and you're you're stuck. You can't guess the other one, so you're, you're not going to be able to win. But as you, you might have already thought, with time travel, this is broken because what you do is you guess one key. You say, "Hey, please give me key zero. You say thanks as you receive the key. You go back in time by one 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 unit of one step. You ask for key one. The game has forgotten that it gave you, that it gave you key zero. Because now you've traveled back in time and, and reset the state to the start of the game. And then it happily gives you key one. Now you have both keys. You present them, you learn the secret bit, and you win. So even with just a bit of time travel, it's already stronger than no time travel at all. So that's nice. So then, you know, let's keep digging through more models of time travel. So in, in this current model, we can only travel one step backwards. So what's the next step? Well or the next sort of extension of this model. Well, what if you could travel more than one step at once? So here I say, okay, go back by one time step. What if I say, go back by two time steps, go back by three, etc. So in the general model of rewinding, you say to the game, I'd like to go back n time steps. And basically, this is the model. Either you say like the adversary, the, the game is gonna roll back all the way and then if you get to like state zero, well, it stops there. So if I ask to go like 100,000 steps back in time, and there's only been four steps so far, this is going to get me to S0, the first state. Or you could say that the game checks that you're asking for like a valid jump so far. Like if there's been four states and you're, you're at S4, you can like only go back three steps or, or I guess four, four steps if you start with S0. But it's sort of a technical detail. And so uh, the question is, is being able to jump back multiple steps at a time more powerful? And the answer is no. And the reason why it's no intuitively is that I can just emulate a large step with multiple small steps because there's no restriction in our first model of how many times you can call it, you can time travel. Uh, so 
if I want to tr travel 100 steps backwards in time, I just call, you know, my previous rewind function, which gave me one step 100 times in a row. So these two models are equivalent. And, and that's sort of as far as you get with rewinding. But there, there's in some sense where rewinding is like not a complete model of time travel. So to illustrate this, let me sort of give an analogy. So um, have you seen Back to the Future it sort of works like this? So in Back to the Future, you know, Marty McFly travels back in time. So that's, that's, that's rewinding. But then he's also sort of able with his DeLorean to travel back to the present day. Of course, the present day gets, gets muted by his choices in the past, but that's sort of a detail. But anyways, he can, the idea is like the way the time machines elite supports to work in the movie, maybe it doesn't work this way because of, of, of plot consequences and because it makes a more interesting movie, but the way it's supposed to work, or at least the way Marty thinks it works is that he can go back in time and then he can go back to where he was in the present day and resume whatever he was doing. So not only can you go backwards, but you can also go forwards and resume from there. And then one way time travel gets modeled in movies as a consequence of this is like you can have parallel timelines. So like you have one timeline which goes from the past to the present, and then you can go backwards in time and create a new parallel timeline. And sometimes you can even sort of shift between. So maybe you have, you know, timeline A, which goes to the present, and then you go back to the past, you start timeline B, which forks off and different stuff happens. Uh, you know, maybe JFK never gets assassinated, you know, stuff like that. And then you can sort of like freely, freely swap between the two timelines and, and, and zip zap around. So that's that's sort of a, a model of time travel you you also want to explore. So both free backwards and forwards time travel with parallel timelines. Uh, so this is kind of hard to model, <laughs> especially explained sort of haphazardly like that. But actually, you can make it somewhat simple. So here's another analogy, uh, which is going to make it quite simple, hopefully. So, uh, if you ever played a, a video game, most like, well, nowadays save files aren't that common, but it used to be if you're playing like Zelda or something, you'd have multiple save files you can access. And then at any point in time, you could like reload a save file and start playing from there. And you can maintain multiple save files at once. And in, in some sense, this is kind of like time travel because like, if I'm not happy with how my game's going, like maybe I die or something, well, I can just reload my save file and like play, play stuff differently. And I can also maintain multiple save files, so I can you know freely move between them. And so the notion of, of save points is sort of what you can use uh, to emulate forking. So the idea is like every save file creates a point in time where, where forks can happen, because whenever I load the save file, that creates a new fork in the timeline. And then I can advance that fork a bit, create another save file that allows me to fork from that point and try different possibilities. So that's the forking model of time travel. And uh, one restriction you can have, so like one, one way to model forking is you just have like a, an arbitrary list of save files and sort of, you know, jump between them arbitrarily. It's, that would be quite powerful. One limited model, which is interesting, is if you just have a stack of save files. So every time I save the game, it go, the save point goes on top of the, uh, on top of the stack. So it, it, the top of the stack is the most recent time I saved. And then I can load the top of the, the stack and consume that save file. So I can sort of like burn the save file and move back to that point in time. And then I can, you know, maybe do some more stuff, create a save point, goes on top of the stack, and then I have to load from that save point before all of the others. And so what's interesting is that this stack model of forking 
is the same as rewinding. It's it's equivalent, which is actually somewhat surprising. But uh, so I, I guess one intuitive way is that because you're limited to a stack where you always have to load the most recent save point, you can emulate uh, this reloading with re rewinding. Because the idea is like, uh, it, whenever I want to reload a save point, because it's the most recent one, there's going to be no obstructions and no issues with me just rewinding far enough into the past to get to, to where that save point is. Um, on the other hand, it's actually somewhat tricky because one, one subtlety here is that in the forking model, you create a save point, and then in the future, you'll be able to move backwards by loading that save point. But basically, you have to say, you have to sort of be somewhat, there's some sort of premonition involved in that you have to decide to make a save point at a given point in time, knowing in the future that you might want to rewind back to that point. Whereas in the rewinding model, you can always decide to rewind without any restrictions. So I can be playing the game, see a certain output, and say, okay, now I need to rewind you know, X number of steps backwards based on the output I've seen. Whereas with the save point model, you have to have decided previously to create a save point X points in the past. So at first, you might, you might actually think that forking might be weaker because you have to prepare your save points in advance. Uh, it turns out it isn't. And the reason it isn't is actually a bit silly. But basically, you can just, since saving has no cost, you can just always save. There's no, there's no limit on the number of save points you can maintain, so you just create a save point at every point in time. That way, you're never going to regret not saving. Maybe this is a good advice for playing video games, too. You know, If you always save at every available save point, you're never going to say, oh, I should have saved. <laughs> so then you can emulate rewinding with forking with the stack model by just saving everywhere. And then if you ever want to rewind, well, you can just you know, burn some save points. Like if, if I want to go three steps back in the past, I've, I have saved at every, every of those three steps. So I just need to burn some save files by loading them, then, you know, discarding them. Because I, I sort of can't directly load the one three, three in the past because they have to go through the top of the stack first. And, and sort of next model of time travel, which I guess I already mentioned, is, well, forking without this restriction. So instead of having a stack of save files, I have a list of save files. So I have, you know, save file number zero, which is the one I get at the start of the game. So that's, you know, the very beginning of the game. And then every time I save, well, I create, you know, save file number one. The next time I save, it's save file number two, etc. And, you know, I can't override existing save files. There's no point anyways, because like the, the list is unbounded. There's no, I, I'm not limited to like three save files or whatever. That'd be another interesting restriction, which I didn't consider. Uh-uh, limiting the number of save files, but anyhow. And, and at any point in time, I can sort of load a save file that I'm playing basically that, that save file. So my interactions at the game, basically the state of the game gets, gets set to that, that save file, and then I can play the game, create new save files, whatever. And so one question is, well, is unbounded use of save files more powerful than having a stack? And the answer is yes. And the reason why is sort of a bit subtle. So intuitively, the, the difference, uh, the key difference is that I can travel back in time and then resume a state. So before with rewinding, once I rewind, whatever state I'm in currently is just lost. When I move backwards in time, whatever I'm doing now, I have to drop that. So in particular, if I've, if I've managed to get the game into a certain state and I need to rewind to be able to do something else, I need to, I won't be able to get to that state unless it's like possible to reproduce that state from the beginning of the game. 
So, so the way you kind of want to exploit this trick when you create the counterexample to separate the two is you want a game where it's difficult to reproduce the state of the game. So like once I move down a certain path, it's very difficult to get the game to move down that path again. So, so the trick I used is that I can have the game generate a random input and then the winning condition is based on that input. And the idea is that if the input is large enough, you know, after learning the input, if I, if I need to do something in a different timeline and I, and I can only rewind, well, I, I won't be guaranteed that I get the same input again when, once I try to advance the state forwards back to that point. So I need the ability to resume at exactly that state because otherwise the input is going to be lost and I'll have to like, my win condition will have changed. So one way to do this is with sort of a, a pseudorandom function. So one way to think of this is just a function using a secret key and if you don't know the secret key, it's impossible to compute the function, and it just looks random to you. And so basically, it's just a function only the game can compute, uh, in essence. And so then the win condition is that uh, the game generates a random input, and you need to give the game the output of that secret function on that input. And the idea is that you can't evaluate the function yourself, and you don't know what the input is. So you need to learn both the input and also have the game kindly give you the output on that input and that will allow you to win the game. And so to make time travel necessary, what you do is, first of all, uh, you allow the game to, the game only allows you to either learn the input or to query the function. So I can say, I want to learn the input. The game says, cool, here's the input, but then now I'm, gonna, I'm not gonna let you query the function. Or the game says, I'm gonna let you query the function once, but then I won't tell you what the input is. And Time travel lets you get around this because you can query the input, then go backwards in time, then query the function. And one thing that you add to make forwards time travel or forking necessary is that when you ask for the input, the game generates it at random, and then you can win. So rather than having the input generated at the very start of the game, and then your win condition is known, I need to know the secret function on this input specifically, rather first you ask for the input, the game generates one at random, says, okay, this is going to be the input that allows you to win. And if you give me, in, a, in you know, a second call, the evaluation of my secret function on this input, I'll let you win. So the way the game works is that either you can ask for the input, you know, the input gets generated at random and then set, and then to win from that point on, you need to query the secret function on the input. But after getting the input, the game does not let you query the secret function, or you start by querying the secret function, but then the game won't let you learn the input. And so the way you can win with forking is that I query the input, it, it gets generated, I get my input, I go backwards in time after making a save point here to the start of the game, I query the secret function on my input, I learn the value I need to win, and then crucially I load the save point I made earlier, and now the input will not have changed. So I can win using the, the evaluation I've just gotten. Whereas with rewinding, this doesn't work. And the reason this doesn't work is that I can't load the state that's been prepared. I can't load the state in which this input has been chosen. I can sort of try and recreate it by asking the game to give me an input, but each time it generates it at random. So the probability that I end up at the same state where I was previously is sort of negligible. And so this shows that forking is strictly stronger because being able to resume a specific state is power, is more powerful uh, because it, it can be difficult to, to get the game into a specific configuration. So 
those were the separations I had. Uh, another thing I considered was uh, if you restrict where in the game you can fork. So maybe I can only fork on every you know third position in time. So any kind of restriction there I showed is strictly weaker. So if I restrict any kind of positions, so if there's a position that's missing, I, I can I can show that that's weaker by basically creating a game where you have to fork at that position specifically to win. Uh, another one is where you limit the depth of each timeline except the, the, the main trunk. And there also, you can engineer a game where you need to reach a specific depth to win. Uh, by basically sort of, it's sort of like the, the game with the two keys, except you need to wait a while to get your answer answer after querying one. So you say, I want key zero, the game says, okay, uh, now ask me five more times and then I'll tell you. But then you have to reach a depth of five in your parallel timelines to win. And then, you know, let's go back to our encryption example to see how this, how this breaks, you know, actual cryptographic schemes. Well, uh, if you have, you know, NCCA, the way it works, to, to resume, you have a, basically, you have a challenge oracle, which you give two messages, M0 and M1, and it gives you the encryption of one of the two messages, but you don't know which, and you have to guess which one, which one it is. And you have two other oracles, one which lets you encrypt messages of your choice, and this one isn't restricted, and you have one which lets you decrypt messages of your choice, with the caveat that if if you generate a challenge with you know two messages, then the ciphertext that comes out of that you can't decrypt that one. So the game keeps tracks of which challenges you've generated, and you can't decrypt those. And this bookkeeping is what makes it not secure against time travel because what you do is you encrypt the two messages, you get your ciphertext, you go back in time. The game has forgotten that it encrypted those messages, and then you ask for the game to decrypt. Uh, the ciphertext, and you learn which, which uh, message is encrypted to begin with. So time travel breaks it completely. Uh, and in general, for example, with signatures, you have a similar game, where the challenger lets you sign messages, and you need to create a forgery, and the idea is like, uh, the forgery doesn't count if it's one of the messages that the game signed. But with time travel, you can make it sign a message, then you go back in time, it's forgotten that it signed it, you present that message and signature it gave you, and it's like, oh, wow, you, congratulations, you won. I've never seen that message before. <laughs> so uh, the analogy there for, like, the real world is, like, I I convince you that, like, you've signed a check to me by because you're going to sign it in, like, 10 years. <laughs> so, like, I go to the future in 10 years where you sign me a check for, like, a legitimate purchase, then I go back in time and use it now. <laughs> That's sort of the analogy there. But one thing, one interesting result is that if the game, if the state of the game never changes, then time travel doesn't help because all time travel does in our models is it just changes what the current state of the game is, uh, either based on sort of a linear sequence or like a, this tree of states. But all it can do is just change what current state the game has. So if the state of the game never changes, well then time travel doesn't help because like the state, the state is fixed. So with uh, chosen plain text attacks against encryption, the state is actually fixed you generate the random key to encrypt with. And then from that point on, there's no bookkeeping. Uh, you can encrypt whatever you want. You can get whatever challenges you want. There's no keeping track of what you've done so far. And because there's no state, well, time travel doesn't help. So that's sort of reassuring in the sense that, you know, if the encryption is like randomized and it's hard to tell what's inside ciphertexts, if you can, if you don't have any ability to, to decrypt them, well, that's still secure even with time travel. Like if I have some data that's, that's encrypted and looks kind of random, and there's no interaction with adversaries, 
uh, they can just you know see different messages and perhaps the same message encrypted multiple times. Uh, being a time traveler doesn't help them in decrypting those. So I guess I, I've sort of uh, given you a mental uh, a mental recap of how the paper works. Uh, I guess hopefully hopefully it was uh, somewhat understandable. Uh, I'd also recommend checking out the paper because it's it has more detail about all the topics I've covered uh, orally today. And I think it's it's actually pretty understandable, uh, even if you don't have a huge background in, in, in the kind of topic. Uh, hopefully, I tried to make it somewhat accessible. <laughs> uh, anyhow, uh, thanks for listening, and I'll see you on the next episode. Bye-bye.